This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Valur, ST's Asia columnist and an associate editor. This series of podcasts focuses on issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my decades of covering the Asian continent. My topic this time is India, which just celebrated its 75th anniversary of independence. As we all know, it is a nation of great complexity and diversity. It is also very big, with close to 1.4 billion people, and it is now a $3 trillion economy. India also is often called the world's biggest democracy, and here the question marks are rising. There's worry that Indian democracy is in regression. To discuss these issues, I have with me today the distinguished political scientist, Dr. Ashutosh Vashne. He is the Saul Goldman Professor of International Relations and Social Sciences at Brown University, United States. He also directs Brown Center for Contemporary South Asia. I've had the privilege of knowing Professor Vashne for more than 40 years, and I always look forward to reading his views. So it is a pleasure for me to have him on this show. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Prof. Vashni. Pleasure to be with you, Ravi, after quite a long time. Dr. Vashni, India likes to call itself the world's largest democracy. Now, is this label appropriate? Yes, it is, but with a qualification. The qualification is that over the last 75 years, there have been moments when it was not democratic especially 1975 to 77, roughly 20 months during the so-called emergency, when Indira Gandhi, India's prime minister at that time, suspended elections, suspended press freedoms, suspended the right to free speech, jailed political opponents, etc. And India's democracy has also been in decline on several measures since the rise of Prime Minister Modi in May 2014. So if you leave out these two phases, 75 to 77, and what's been happening since 2014, you could say that India had a very good run as the largest democracy of the world. Before I come to some of the points you raised, uh, Dr. Vashney, particularly the emergency of 1975 and the arrival of uh, Prime Minister Modi in 2014, could I ask, what have been the high points of Indian democracy? So if you go through democratic theory and use it as a basis for judgment, which is how scholars approach the matter, then the fact that there have been eight turnovers in power, eight in Delhi, And tens of times, power has changed hands at the state level. India has had more than 380 state elections. That record, according to democratic theory, is very impressive. Typically, though, in the developing world, those who lose power are reluctant to quit and find all kinds of ways to undo the electoral verdict. That has been a story repeated many, many times all over the developing world. Those in power don't easily quit office even when electorally defeated. 
India has had eight turnovers in Delhi and tens of times state governments have have been defeated and the incumbents have quit office and those who won have assumed power. That is an unrivaled, unparalleled record after 1945, after the Second World War. There is no other example of that sort of democratic conduct. So that's certainly a very important point, a very important achievement of Indian democracy according to democratic theory. That's great. But, uh, you know, one of the notable aspects that you see in India lately, at least at the federal level, and particularly since uh, Mr. Modi doesn't seem to have any children of his own, it is that political dynasties seem to be on the decline, at least at the federal level. Now, is this a valid observation and is it healthy for democracy? So the question of dynasties and democracies is a complicated one. If the dynastic family continues to get electoral endorsement, if it's electorally legitimated, there is nothing in democratic theory that can be held against that phenomenon. However, it is clear that democratic theory does not have a very good way of handling this for the simple reason that if you are part of a dynastic family uh, which has been in power for very long, you clearly have some inbuilt advantages over outsiders. And therefore, um, if dynasties start counting for not as much as they did in the past, and outsiders begin to come into the or begin to reach the highest echelons of power, then that is certainly good news for democracy. So weakening of uh, dynasties or dynastic power, while democratic theory is quite silent on it, is certainly a development which most democratic theories or most democracy scholars would welcome, weakening of dynastic power. And that has been happening in India to a considerable extent. For example, the Nehru-Gandhi dynasty has declined appreciably, and it's not clear they can come back to power easily. Now, you cannot discuss India without discussing caste. And it is often said that in India, people just don't cast their vote, but also vote their caste. But uh, 75 years after India's independence, how strong is caste in India today as a social, economic, and particularly political phenomenon? Yes, so caste in India has been an integral feature of Hindu society, which is 80% of India, roughly, for centuries. And something so deeply entrenched does not easily go away, especially under democratic systems, where democratic systems attack hierarchies incrementally or gradually, not in a revolutionary way. So the caste-based hierarchy in India, a legacy of centuries of the working of the caste system, has certainly been weakening. But here is a case of battles half won, not battles fully won. Lower castes have risen in politics. That whole phenomenon began in South India first, where the lower caste displaced Brahmins and the upper caste in general in the political power structure. And from that, a certain loosening of social hierarchy also followed. And from that, a certain loosening 
of educational and economic hierarchy also followed. So the biggest attack or the first attack was on the hierarchy through politics. And then there were ramifications in society, in culture, in economics. That trend began in the 1970s and then became very prominent in the 80s and 90s. And now you could argue quite forcefully that virtually all over India, with very few states as exceptions, virtually all over India, uh, lower castes have risen and become very important players in politics. And without paying attention to lower caste concerns, political parties cannot function. But this doesn't mean that all lower castes have benefited. The lowest, the Dalits, have benefited less than the caste just above them. So Indian caste system can be seen as having three tiers, the upper caste as the top tier, the middle caste as the second tier, and the Dalits and Adivasis as the third tier. You could simplify that without doing violence to the facts on the ground. And the castes that have benefited most are the middle castes. Hmm? Dalits, it's, it's not that Dalits have not benefited, they have, but they have benefited less. And Adivasis, the so-called scheduled tribes or the tribal groups have benefited least in the last 75 years. So it's a mixed record. And as I said, it's a battle half won. The hierarchy has not been completely demolished. So when you say Dalits, you mean the people who are lowest in the Hindu social order, the former untouchable castes of India. And the Adivasis are the uh, tribals, so perhaps uh, in some countries they might be referred to as the aboriginals. Yeah, so the tribals who are basically have been historically dependent on the forest for livelihoods. Correct. Now, whatever you said uh, recently, I mean, uh, what, what you just finished saying, suggests that there's been reasonable elite circulation in India. And has that been a good thing for uh, Indian democracy? Yes, that's correct. That's a, Even this half-one battle has been a good thing for India's democracy because outsiders, social out, or historical outsiders, have managed to reach the highest echelons of power. That's wonderful. Now, to come back to that point you made about uh, 1975 and Indira Gandhi declaring emergency rule and suspending democratic rights. Now, today, many scholars and even ordinary people have been worrying that India's democracy is showing tremendous strain. Now, is this worry well merited? And where is Indian democracy weakest? So it's best to split democracy or democratic experience into two parts the electoral side and the non-electoral side. Elections are episodic. Every five years they take place. And as far as India's electoral democracy is concerned, it has functioned very well, functioned much better than the non-electoral side. What is the non-electoral side? Freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of religious practice. At least three freedoms are absolutely central to those five years between elections, which is to say most of the time. Elections are episodic. These freedoms govern routine life, everyday life. On freedom of expression, freedom of association, and freedom of religious practice, 
India has not on the whole functioned as well in the last 75 years as an electoral democracy. And since the rise of Mr. Modi, it has functioned even worse. Writers and dissenters are not as free to express themselves as was true earlier before 2014. Freedom of association typically affects civil society, civil society organizations. Those organizations that are not regime supportive have been hounded, attacked. Their registrations have been cancelled or not renewed. And that number is in hundreds now. It's not just two or three organizations. Whereas regime supportive civil society organizations such as the RSS have received official encouragement and have not had any governmental checks imposed. Freedom of religious practice typically concerns minorities, religious minorities. India has seen quite a quite ferocious rise of Hindu majoritarianism since 2014 and of an equally ferocious attack on the Muslim minority and its various religious practices. Historically, Hindu nationalists were also opposed to Christians, but the attack on Christians has not been as pronounced since 2014 as on the Muslims of India. That's about 14.2% of India's population, according to the last census, which was in 2011. That adds up to 200 million people. So you can say that 200 million Indians have been at the receiving end of the Modi regime's policies and everyday state practices. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guest, the distinguished political scientist, Dr. Ashutosh Vajni of Brown University, United States. Prime Minister Modi recently spoke about uh, turning India into a developed economy in a certain time frame. Now, do you think India can achieve its ambition to be a developed economy if its democracy flounders? It is a very important question. And my answer is that if its democracy collapses, it has not collapsed yet, it is weaker. If it collapses, and especially if ethno-religious conflicts become the center stage or central aspect of Indian political life, then I don't see how the aim of becoming a developed economy by 2047, which will be 100 years after India's independence, I don't see how that aim can be achieved. India can, under those conditions, go through a Sri Lankan path where the Tamil minority, after being discriminated against politically and administratively for very long, went into civil war mode. I don't think India can, will have a civil war. That's not my prediction. What my prediction is that conflicts will become so serious between the majority and the minority. If they, or if they become very serious, then that will also, as in Sri Lanka, derail the economic process, derail the growth process, and obstruct the rise of India as a developed economy by 2047. I don't see how intense ethnic conflicts and uninterrupted economic growth can go together. Something like Sri Lanka can happen. Going by all the trends that you just listed, would you say that Indian democracy itself is in danger? 
could the country lose democracy and perhaps become an authoritarian government or even worse? So as far as the non-electoral dimensions are concerned, I don't see any sign of improvement in response to your question. The real test would be how the currently dominant, even hegemonic by some accounts, party, the BJP, deals with its electoral defeats when the defeats finally come. They will come someday. They may not come in 2024. They may not come in the 18 states that the BJP rules. In 10 states, BJP is not in power out of 28 states. In 10 states, it's not in power. So it's not yet hegemonic in, in the sense in which Congress party was hegemonic in the 50s and 60s. Congress lost until 1967 only one state, Kerala, and maybe Kashmir. Okay, two states, only two states it lost. The BJP is not in power in 10 out of 28 states at this point. So it's not as hegemonic as Congress used to be. However, it may be on the way to being a hegemon as possible. If it wins elections in those 10 states, non-BJP states, I think it's unlikely. But I think the real test would be when a national level defeat comes, let's say in 2029, if not in 2024, how will it deal with a national level defeat? If it goes in a Trumpian direction, questioning the integrity of elections or tries to manipulate elections, then yes, democracy will collapse. So the answer is, in other words, clear on the non-electoral side. The non-electoral democracy has been weakening and I don't see any sign of its revival. It's the electoral side which will answer the crux of the matter you have raised or the, the core of the question that you've raised. How will BJP deal with election defeats when they finally come? They will someday. Uh, brings me uh, to ask you this question. You live in the United States and at least your writing seems to be done there while your research might be all over South Asia. But um, this democratic recession or regression, whatever you might want to call it, is it something that is uniquely Indian or is it part of a wider phenomenon that you're seeing around the world? It has to be called a wider phenomenon at this point. The term that political science has developed, the concept that it has developed to capture this worldwide phenomenon is democratic backsliding or democratic erosion. These are the two terms used in theory. And democratic backsliding is a concept that covers what has happened in Hungary, what has happened in Poland, what has happened in the United States of America under Trump. And it might happen again if Trump returns to power in two years. What has happened in Turkey, what has happened not in UK, not in France, not in Germany, not in Northern Europe. What has happened, let's say, is there any other example? What's happened in Pakistan? Pakistan was developing into a reasonable democracy. But now I think the way the ousted prime minister is using mass mobilization, etc., might hurt Pakistani democracy. And certainly there was the great example of Sri Lanka after roughly the mid-1960s. If you think of democratic erosion or democratic backsliding, uh, its origins, then Sri Lanka, which is a small country, therefore not in much focus, but it's, it's forgotten that Sri Lanka was the first democracy, universal franchise democracy outside Europe. 
democracy came to Sri Lanka even before independence. In 1931, it had universal franchise. And by roughly the mid-1960s, an attack, a systematic attack on minorities began and democratic erosion also began. We didn't have this term at that time. But the first democratic backslider that we can think of after 1945 would be Sri Lanka. And if you stretch it back further, then you have the case of American South and the increasing withdrawal of or or suppression of the rights of the black community between 1880 and the Second World War. And then, of course, what happened in interwar Europe in country after country. So now when we use the term democratic backsliding or democratic erosion, we cover this whole space. And given that it's happening in so many countries right now, a lot of scholars are asking what's in common between what's happening now and what happened during interwar Europe, what happened after 1880 in the United States of America, especially in the South, where the states that that rebelled against uh, unity or rebelled against a united America during the Civil War tried to reimpose restriction of rights and violence, both legal restriction of rights and illegal forms of violence, both were imposed on the black community. And that lasted decades and decades. So yes, to summarize my answer to your question, currently it's a worldwide phenomenon, but this has also happened in the past. A final question for you, Dr. Vashni. Is India closer to its true ethos today under Mr. Modi and the BJP than when it was founded in 1947? Now, I mean to ask, was secularism something alien to Indians when it was sort of foisted on them? And is the idea of India as a plural, secular democracy itself being actively recast? So India's secularism has generated an intense, long, and important debate. Was it foisted? Was it forcibly imposed by westernized rulers in the first decades of independence, people like Nehru? But we forget that even much more homegrown leadership such as the leadership of Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the leadership of the great Dalit leader who has been recognized, and justly so, as a great national leader, not simply a Dalit leader. All of them supported the idea of a secular co-living. You might say Nehru had Nehru was more Western than Westernized than any other leader in the initial years. And that there, there's some truth to that. It is not entirely true. It's not that Nehru has no connection with the masses. No, he had a very deep connection with the masses. But he was not religious at all. Uh, and he understood religion not the way Gandhi understood religion. Gandhi was much more rooted. But all of them argued for religious coexistence and made that argument for religious coexistence and said that the religious coexistence idea, that part of secularism is not alien to India. While there have been rulers, both Hindu and Muslim in history, who were religiously intolerant, uh, we can think of certainly two Mughal rulers, Aurangzeb and Babur. And we can also go back to Delhi Sultanate, the pre-Mughal period, where we can identify a couple of them. But on the whole, the argument that Gandhi and Nehru and Ambedkar gave was Hindu rulers at a certain point of time were very intolerant towards Buddhists. 
And some Muslim rulers, while intolerant towards Hindu, that may be true, but many Muslim rulers uh, integrated Hindu and uh, motifs in their statecraft, in their courtly practices, in their policies, in their promotion of culture. And so the Indian culture that emerged after the so-called Muslim period of Indian history was a syncretistic culture. That term has been repeatedly used, essentially meaning that Hindu and Muslim religious and cultural motifs were brought into a synthesis. And that's how Indian culture was practiced in an everyday sense, at the village level, in the cities and towns. So religious coexistence as an integral aspect of secularism it is argued by most scholars, was not imposed on India. That was not just a Western idea. And Indian secularism did not believe, in any case, in the, the Western idea of a complete separation between religion and statecraft. Indian secularism was defined as equidistance, that the state while it might get involved in religion, will maintain neutrality with respect to religions, right? So the idea was neutrality rather than complete separation. And this neutrality, this principle of neutrality was based upon, was rooted in the centuries-long practice of coexistence, religious coexistence. That's why we can say that Indian secularism, the way it was defined, was a very, very indigenous phenomenon. And it was not the Western idea that was borrowed. Hmm? Western idea would call for separation between these two realms. Indians defined it as neutrality, not separation. That's brilliant. Thank you for your insights, uh, Professor Vashni. It's been a pleasure to have you on Speaking of Asia. It's been a pleasure for me also to talk to you, Ravi, after such a long time and look forward to our future interaction. Thank you. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by the Straits Times Asian Insider Channel. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. And if you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast text below. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.